me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. As we come to Mark chapter 14 now, it is Passover, and uh, we are 18 hours from the cross. I should say Jesus is 18 hours from the cross. And it says here in chapter 14 of Mark's Gospel, verse 12, Now when the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, the disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? Now the disciples asked a very practical question because, as I said last week, the city of Jerusalem and its surrounding uh, suburbs and villages swelled to between two and a half and three million people around this time. This is Passover day now, and they're wondering, where are we going to eat the Passover meal? We're not from around here. We don't have any houses here. Lord, have you made any kind of provisions? I mean, the city's packed out, you know? There's no vacancy signs lit everywhere. So uh, they said to him, where do you want us to go to eat the Passover meal? And he said, he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, now we know from the other gospels it was Peter and John, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. And I say, well, how are they going to find this guy carrying a pitcher of water? I mean... Doesn't seem like such a big sign to me. Well, in those days, men did not carry pitchers of water. The women did that. That was that kind of domestic labor a man very seldom have ever did. It was always the women that carried the water pots, and they would get water at certain times of the day. They, it was their job to go to the well and basically get the water. So to see a man carrying a water pot would have been, believe me, unique. He would have stood out. So they would have had no trouble missing this guy. All right. And Jesus said, when you see this character carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. And wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, remember the incident where we had the triumphal entry and he told two of his disciples to go into the village nearby and you'll find a colt tied to a post by the alleyway of a certain residence and all. And people say, well, gee, was that just omniscience, or did he have that pre-planned? Uh, I think the Lord probably had it pre-planned. People say, well, what about this? I mean, was this all pre-planned, or was this somehow some kind of a miraculous thing, you know, and the guy wasn't expecting him when the disciples came and says, look, well, where is the master going to eat? And he, you know, this glazed look came over his eyes and said, upstairs, you know, and like he was taken over by the Spirit. Well, <laughs> no, I think it was probably a combination of the two. I think it was probably omniscience coupled with practicality. I think that the Lord had already made arrangements and he had many disciples. This was one of his unnamed disciples. Just goes to show you that just because your name isn't known, you still have things the Lord can use. And he had need of this man's upper room. And even though this man's name was not given in the scriptures, God knows who he was and God will reward him for what he did. But I think there was a combination of omniscience and practical uh, things because I think that Jesus' omniscience was able to see his servant carrying this pot of water. And Jesus told his disciples, when you see this guy, follow him back to the house because I've made arrangements basically with the owner of the house to eat the Passover in his upper room. Now the larger houses in Jerusalem uh, had upper rooms. And they looked like large boxes with a smaller box on top. And that's the configuration of one of these larger homes. And the upper room was usually a place where they would either uh, store things. It was a place of meditation or prayer. It was also used as a guest room. And it always or oftentimes had stairs that would lead from the outside of the residence up to the second floor. And it had its own entrance, so you didn't have to go through the main uh, part of the house to get there. Okay, not like our house. It was all outside. It was completely accessible from the outside. And so Jesus said to his disciples, you, when you go, you find this guy carrying the water pot, follow him, go into the house where he goes in and tell the master of that house uh, to show you where the upper room is. Verse 15, then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared and there make ready for us. Now, if it was furnished and prepared, what do they have to make ready? Well, several things. First of all, Peter and John had to get the lamb. It was no doubt their responsibility after the lamb had been slaughtered to bring it back and to roast it. So their responsibility was to bring the, the lamb back for the roasting of the, the meal. But also you had to have unleavened bread there. 
the unleavened bread. Of course, Passover spoke of their having to leave Egypt, right? I mean, they're, they're leaving Egypt, uh, being delivered from the bondage of Egypt. It was a feast that commemorated that. The unleavened bread spoke of the fact that they were to leave in haste. Remember God said that they weren't even going to have time to let their bread raise and therefore they had to make unleavened bread because they were going to make a hasty retreat out of Egypt. So unleavened bread was a part of the Passover meal. They also had the salt water there on the table in a bowl which represented the tears that were shed during their years of bondage in Egypt. They had bitter herbs that were put out, horseradishes and other bitter herbs that they would dip in the salt water. And again, this signified uh, and it helped them remember the bitter experiences mixed with tears during all those years of bondage in Egypt. They also had a mixture of, of dates, apples, nuts, and pomegranates mixed with a little wine which was called keresheth in the Hebrew. And it was a, a mixture that was supposed to remind them, and sometimes they would even mix in sticks of cinnamon, which reminded them of the mortar and the straw that they had made all those years and in Egypt. But it was sweet, signifying that God had turned their hard bondage into freedom. And so out of the bitter came the sweet. And so the Keresheth was a reminder of how God did turn what was very bitter into something very sweet after he delivered them. They also had four cups of wine that were drunk at different times during the meal. We'll talk a little bit more about those next time because they really uh, get into the text for next week. But all this had to be made ready. All of it had to be prepared for the Passover meal. And so they went and they made ready. And verse 16 says, And his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say to him, One by one, is it I? In the Greek, the way this is structured, it could be read, It's not me, is it, Lord? See, they were asking this question, but expecting a no response from the Lord. And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now, a lot goes on between verses 17 and 18. And to find out what goes on during those verses, I want you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 13. Because John inserts in between those two verses in Mark a lot of detail. As I said, by the time you come to John's Gospel, chapter 13, Jesus is 18 hours from the cross. This is going to be the last meal he is going to spend or to eat with his disciples before his crucifixion. And it's going to be by far the most important meal he would eat with them out of all the meals he had eaten with them up until this point. The reason I say that is because John devotes one quarter of his gospel to this one night where Jesus has this last meal with his disciples. And what went on, what Jesus taught them, the only gospel that gives us insight into what Jesus really said in detail that night. John goes into great detail. So let's pick it up in John's Gospel, chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and that's significant because all throughout the Gospels we read that Jesus said over and over again, his hour had not yet come. Remember that? We get the definite impression he's on a very specific timetable. And of course, the one who wrote through the prophet in Ecclesiastes 3.1, for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, well, that was embodied in, of course, Jesus Christ himself, who was on a very specific timetable. And so all throughout his ministry, we hear him say, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. Here, for the first time he says, or the second time I should say, he says it also in chapter 12, he says, my hour has come. And he's not talking about a specific 60-minute period of time. He's talking about a general period. The hour of his crucifixion has arrived. 
when he would show the world once and for all the great love wherewith God has loved the lost, has loved this world because he was going to the cross in just a few hours to show once and for all to this world that God indeed loves this world so much that he was willing to give his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The Greek says to the uttermost, to perfection. He loved them in spite of all their faults and flaws and weaknesses. He knew these guys. Man, he didn't. He, people say, well, gee, didn't the Lord know what he was getting himself into by picking these 12 men? Sure he did. Of course he did. He knew, exa he knew ex exactly what he, what he was getting himself into when he picked all of us. I mean, we think that we let God down. We don't let God down. Certainly we grieve his heart. But to say we let God down when we fall and when we fail implies we're surprising God with behavior that he didn't expect of us. We don't let God down. God knows us even better than we know ourselves. He proved that, of course, by telling Peter he was, gonna be, he was going to uh, deny him. Uh, three times. And Peter, of course, is Lord. No way. And Jesus says, all right, pal, hang on. You'll find out. Uh, but he loves us in spite of all of our faults and flaws and weaknesses. And he knows all of our sins, even before we commit them. And he still loves us to the end. Verse 2 says, and supper being ended. And the Greek actually says, this is a bad translation. The Greek actually says, and the supper being in progress. The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And Judas, his last name is not Iscariot. It comes from two Greek words, Ishkarioth, which Ish means man, and Karioth is a town in Judah, in Judea. So he was Judas, the man from Karioth. That was the way they designated who he was. Because remember, the Gospels were written years after the fact after Jesus had died, you know, rose again, ascended into heaven, his half-brother Judas got saved and became very prominent in the church. He wrote the gospel of the gospel. Oh, man, hang on. He wrote the epistle of Jude. He was the half-brother of Jesus. And so to differentiate, of course, to those that were reading the gospels who this Judas was, he was Judas, the man from Kerioth. Okay, his last name wasn't Iscariot. So, verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, why did Jesus all of a sudden stop and begin to wash the disciples' feet? It says, while the supper was already in progress. The supper would open up by drinking the first cup of wine. And the wine was mixed three parts of wine to two parts of water. It was diluted a tremendous amount because you didn't want to get drunk. This was Passover. For anyone to get drunk at Passover would be to, de to desecrate one of the most holiest celebrations of the Jewish year. So it was not meant for any kind of purposes to get drunk. The Jews ab abhorred drunkenness. So they would dilute the wine, three parts wine to two parts water. And they would begin the Passover meal by drinking the first cup of wine. Then they would wash their hands in the ceremonial way, which would signify that God wanted them to enter into this meal with clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, it was a, a symbolized a moral cleanliness, a spiritual cleansing, okay? Now we have to kind of insert what we read in the other Gospels. Because apparently at this point, after they had drunk that first cup of wine and after they had washed their hands, apparently from what Luke tells us, an argument broke out. They began to argue among themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now they had had this argument all throughout Jesus' ministry. Who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. See, Jesus was going to be the king. I'm going to be at his right hand. No, no, I'm going to be at his right hand. Okay, I'll be at his left hand. You know, who is going to be the greatest? When you recognize that Jesus was just 18 hours from the cross, 
and that already the events of the next day were weighing heavy upon him. Soon he would be kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane and would be pouring out his heart to his father, agonizing in, in uh, spirit. The, uh, the pressure and the anxiety and the stress of the cross would be pressing so heavy upon him that he would actually begin to sweat drops of blood. He knew what was coming. He knew what was just around the corner. His hour had come. He said that. And yet here they were, so carnally minded. After all he had taught them for three and a half years, and now he's just hours from the cross, he's about to be taken away from them, and here they are at this late hour, totally oblivious to what he's going through, only consumed with their own selfish desires, arguing who's going to be the greatest, and he's sitting there watching this, recognizing that in just a short time he's going to have to turn the kingdom the work of the kingdom over to these men, he decides to use this opportunity as one last teaching opportunity to teach them the true meaning of greatness in God's eyes, which is not to be served, but to be a servant. And so the king of the universe, the God of glory, stood as the disciples were arguing among themselves who was going to be the greatest and he girded himself with a towel, he took off of his, ro his robe, his, his tunic, he girded himself with a towel around his waist like an apron. He poured water into a basin and began to wash their feet. Now you say, well, what is going on there? Well, what's the story? Well, you have to understand that uh, back then, whenever people would walk, uh, would travel, of course, they would uh, most always times do it by foot. And they would walk on dirt paths. And back then there was no Nikes or Converse to wear. Uh, they would wear open-toed uh, sandals. Which meant that by the time you got to the destination where you were going, your feet were oftentimes very dirty. And it was just customary, common courtesy for the, uh, for the owner of the house to which you had come to leave a pot of water with a basin and a pitcher by the door. And when you entered the house, you would have a servant come and would stoop down, take your sandals off, and wash your feet before you entered into the house. It was a common courtesy. Of course, the servant who washed the feet of others, though, was considered the lowliest of all servants. It was a very menial and often humiliating, degrading kind of a job, uh, reserved for the lowliest, the, the most menial of servants. Well, when the disciples arrived in the upper room, they were alone. There was no servant to wash their feet. The right thing to, to do would have been for one of them to take it upon himself to wash the other's feet or at least for them to take turns washing the, uh, each other's feet in preparation for the meal. But that wasn't likely to happen when you're arguing among yourselves who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, right? And so Jesus is sitting there, and he's watching them arguing, knowing that in just a few hours he's going to be taken from them. And so at one point in the argument, he stands up, walks over, takes his robe off, his tunic off, girds himself with a towel, stoops down, pours water into the basin, and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now you can imagine, they all knew that that was the lowliest task of the lowliest servant. You can imagine how quiet that room must have gotten in just a very short time. And I would imagine that those men became bright red as they recognized that Jesus Christ was making a statement. He was not only teaching them a principle, he was making a statement. They knew that after he had stooped down, they should have taken it upon themselves to wash his feet and one another's feet. But as he began to wash their feet, I'm sure there was embarrassment. I'm sure there was some weeping. And he goes from one disciple to the other. And verse 6 says, Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Now Peter was shocked, along with the other disciples. Why? Well, not only because their master was washing their feet, but again, remember the mindset of the disciples. Up until this point, they are still believing that Jesus is going to set up the kingdom, and they're going to be right by his side. They still believe he's going to do this, even though he had basically said he's going away. See, it's, it's not going to happen, guys. They still would not let go of the fact that he was going to set up the kingdom. And the idea of the king washing their feet, well, it just was, it just dumbfounded them. It was, they were flabbergasted, you see, to see the king 
stooping down to wash their feet. But you know, it was as Jesus' actions and his words, uh, through his actions and words, he had proved to them what he had said earlier, that he had not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He said to Peter, this you don't understand yet, but you will soon. In other words, you still don't get it. That I haven't come to be king and to be served. I've come to die. I've come to give my life as a ransom to serve others, Peter. You may not get it yet, but you soon will. See? However, Peter, being that lovable guy that he was, would not let this lie. He responds to the Lord by saying, You shall never wash my feet. The Greek is a double negative. No way, you're never going to wash my feet. See? Jesus said to him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter said to him, Well then, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, Peter says, Well, Lord, if that's the case, I'll take a bath. Now, I love Peter. I mean, he does tend to put his foot in his mouth a lot, but boy, what a heart, you know? He had a heart for the Lord. And the Lord looked past a lot of his failings and his fumblings and all of that, and he just saw his heart. And he knew that Peter, in his heart, really did love the Lord. And Jesus was basically saying to Peter, Peter, if I don't wash you, if I don't cleanse you, now he's using a physical illustration, but he's moving off now to teach also a spiritual truth. If I don't cleanse you, then you have no part in me. The Greek word is meros, which means you have no participation. You have no share in me. You're not connected with me. You won't be a part of me. Is what he is saying. And so Peter says, well, then, Lord, I'll take a bath. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Now, again, Jesus is using a physical illustration to teach a very important spiritual truth. In the Greek, two words are used. The word for bathed there in verse 10 is luo, and the word for to wash is nipto. And let me explain the practical background, and then we'll make the spiritual point. When the Jews got up in the morning, they would basically take a bath. Often it would be a sponge bath, in a sense, what we would think of as a sponge bath. But they would wash their entire body, luo. That meant to wash your entire body. But as they walked where they had to go during the day, their feet would often get dirty. So when they came into a person's house, they would wash again. But not luo, they didn't take a whole bath again, they just niptoho, just what that Greek word meant was to wash one small part of your body, most times the feet, okay? It was the feet that got dirty. Your whole body was basically still clean from the bath you took in the morning, see? So they would just niptoho, just wash their feet. And Jesus Christ is using this physical illustration to teach a spiritual truth. He is saying, Peter, and, it, and the idea here is salvation. He says, he who is bathed, because he just had got done saying, Peter, if I don't cleanse you, you have no part in me. Now, from that, Peter says, well, then I'll take a bath. And Jesus basically says to him, Peter, he who has already been bathed doesn't need to be bathed again. They just need to have their feet washed. But it's completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Jesus Christ is using this as an illustration of salvation. And he is basically saying, look, once you have come to me, once you have received me, and my blood has washed you of your sins, and you have been saved, you don't need to be washed again. You don't need to be saved over and over again. All you need to do is have your feet washed. In other words, once you're saved, you're saved forever. Hebrews 10.14, For by one sacrifice he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The idea is once we are cleansed by the blood of Christ, that cleansing is eternal. However, as we live in this world, we are going to pick up some of the dirt of the world. We are going to sin. But when that happens, we need to then nip to, we need to be cleansed of those sins to confess our sins and to be cleansed of those areas of sin. 
And of course, the Word of God comes into play there because the Bible says that the Word of God is like water that keeps us clean. Jesus said to his disciples, Now you are clean through the Word which I have spoken to you. And I think part of it is that as we go through our day, we pick up some of the dirt of the world, we come home, confess those sins to God, get out the Word of God, and get washed up. Okay? But that doesn't mean we're getting saved again, does it? It simply refers to the area of fellowship. Now you say, well, how do you know that's talking about spiritual cleansing? I mean, maybe Jesus was just talking about literal bathing. Well, no, because the Greek here, for the word bathed there in verse 10, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. That Greek word is in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense in Greek signifies some act that happened in the past but the effects of which are constant and continuous. Now, we know that can't be referring to a literal bath. You don't take a bath once in your life and you stay clean the rest of your life, okay? The effects of that are not continuous for the rest of your life. But salvation is, whenever you got saved, no matter when it was in the past, that act of cleansing through the blood of Christ, the effects of that cleansing are now continuous for the rest of your life. That's what the perfect tense in the Greek means. So that you are continually being cleansed by the blood of Christ. You're washed completely forever, basically. As God sees you now, positionally, you are sinless. You are perfect. You are holy. You are totally righteous, positionally speaking. Practically speaking, as we live in this world, we know we're not totally sinless, totally holy totally righteous. No, we're going to pick up some of the dirt and the sin of the world. When that happens, we need to confess our sins. As John says, if we confess our sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. What does that mean? Practically speaking. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the context there was fellowship John was talking about. See? That keeps our fellowship with God intact. It has nothing to do with our salvation, though. We are saved through the blood of Christ. Once we have been washed, we have been washed forever in the blood of Christ. That's what Jesus said about his disciples, except for one. He says, Peter, you don't need to be saved again. He said, if you don't let me cleanse you, Peter, you have no part in me. Peter said, I'll take a bath. Jesus said, you don't need a bath, Peter. You've already been washed. You've already been saved. You just need to get scrubbed up a little bit once in a while because some of the dirt rubs off from the world. But not all of you have been bathed. Not all of you have been cleansed of your sins. Because he goes on to say, verse 11, For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. Now, there are some people that believe that Judas Iscariot was a Christian, but he lost his salvation. I am of the firm belief that Judas Iscariot was never saved. He was never born again. In John chapter 6, if you turn back there, Jesus is talking about what it means to be a true disciple. He's laying out the cost of discipleship, and we'll just pick it up at the end of what he had to say. In verse 63, he said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. So he lumps Judas into this category of those who did not believe. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Judas was a devil. He was a, he was a, a deceiver. He was never genuine. We know from Mark's gospel, Jesus said in chapter 14, it would be better for that man if he had never been born. Now, Judas would have been better off had he never been born. But you know what? Everybody who rejects Jesus Christ would be better off if they had never been born. Because to live your life and reject Christ, to die without Christ, it would be better for you if you had never been born. But I think especially Judas stands out as one of the, probably the greatest tragedy in human history. Here's a guy who had so much potential, so much opportunity 
for greatness. I mean, chosen by Jesus to be one of his 12 apostles, one of his closest men. He walked with Jesus for three and a half years in a way that very few got to walk with him. He was empowered by the Lord with miraculous abilities. Uh, when Jesus sent them out two by two, they were healing the sick, casting out demons. Uh, people were getting saved, and Judas was a part of all of that. You say, and he was never saved? That's right. Well, how could that be? Well, read Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 28, where Jesus said, On the day of judgment, many are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do many wonderful works in your name? And he's going to say to them, Depart from me, what? I never knew you. See, not I knew you for a while and you lost your salvation. I never knew you. Well, that's a very sobering thought. There's a lot of people going to church who call Jesus Lord, who are involved in ministry, who, some of which even have miraculous powers to a certain degree, and they're not really saved. I mean, that is a sobering, frightening thought. That's why the Bible says, make your calling and election sure. Judge yourself, Paul said, and you won't have to be judged by God. Make sure right now that you stop and get on your knees and ask God, Lord, am I real? Am I for real? Or am I like Judas? Just because I follow Jesus, call him Lord, and maybe even have a ministry or even have experienced some gifts, supernaturally speaking, does that mean I'm really saved? Well, that's a sobering thought. And I think Judas stands as the ultimate example to everybody that has ever gone to church and called upon the name of Christ and called him Lord, look, the words don't mean anything. What's in your heart? And so verse 11, Jesus knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Or in other words, you're not all saved. Judas is not saved. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you not know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now, because of these verses, many churches conduct regularly what's called foot washing ceremonies. And you know what? I have no problem with that, except I don't really believe that's what Jesus was saying here. And the reason I say that is, first of all, the Greek word there, as, in verse 15, you should do as I have done to you, is kathos, which is a word that means like as, or in other words, follow the principle, but not the exact action, is what the intent is. There's another Greek word for as, which is ha, which means that which, or in other words, do exactly that which I have done. Now, Jesus used the first one, which was kathos, which means do like I have done. Or in other words, follow the principle. Be a servant. Wash each other's feet in the spiritual sense, not necessarily in the literal sense. The reason I say that also is because nowhere in the book of Acts did they, wash, did they have foot washing services. Uh, nowhere in the epistles is it ever taught. One of the ways we can tell what is unique and what is universal for church practices. Did Jesus teach it? Did the book of Acts practice it? Did the epistles reinforce it? Water baptism, taught by Jesus, practiced by the church in the book of Acts, reinforced by the apostles in the, in the epistles? Yes, we should be practicing baptism, water baptism. Foot washing, Jesus followed it here, but we never see it in the book of Acts practice. We never hear about it in the epistles, so we recognize it was just a unique thing for this moment as they were eating the Passover meal. Now you say, well, was it important for them to have their feet washed? Yes, it was very important. You see, back then, uh, and of course, uh, all of our pictures that we've seen of the Last Supper are all wrong. So you can just, if you got one, you can actually just toss it. It really is not uh, accurate. Uh, they didn't sit at tables to eat like we do. They would recline on small couches called tricliniums around a very low wooden table which was like a solid block of wood laying on the floor just a uh, just a f inches or actually a foot or so above the, the floor and these couches called tricliniums would be positioned around the table in a, in a U at a 45 degree angle 
and they would hold three people to a couch. That's why they were called triclinians. And you would actually uh, lean over on your left side with your underneath, you know, resting on your left arm, which would give your right arm freedom to move, and you would eat food like that. And it would mean that somebody would be in front of you, if you were in the middle, uh, their head would be very near your breast or your chest, and then behind you, your head would be very near the person's chest or breast behind you. And you would recline at these, at the around the table in a, in a U, the host of the meal would, would recline in the middle at the, at the, at the uh, bottom of the U, get the picture, and because you were kind of reclining at a 45 degree angle to the table, it meant that someone's feet were not too far away from your head. And nothing is will take your appetite away quicker than to be reclining with somebody's dirty feet close to your head. That's why it was important that they had their feet washed. That's why it was a courtesy in that culture. You didn't want to recline with dirty feet. I mean, it just wasn't good. And uh, so, uh, Yes, it was important for them to do that. And so Jesus did it because they wouldn't do it, and he needed to teach them a lesson about humility and servanthood. Verse 16, Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. If you know what things? If you know the principle involved in servanthood. From what I read in what Jesus said here in John 15 and other places, the road to happiness is not a road of self-fulfillment, self-esteem, self-love. It's a road of self-service where you give yourself away as servants to others. Jesus said, you want to be happy? In John 15, he said, you want your joy to be full? Then love each other as I have loved you. How did I love you? I'm giving myself, I'm giving my life for you. And so Jesus giving us really the, the true principles of happiness. He said, look, if you serve each other, if you give to one another, if you don't seek to be lords over each other, but servants to each other, you're going to know true happiness. That's what true happiness is all about, being a servant to others. Uh, the more you get into yourself, the more you get into self-esteem, into self-love, the more you look into yourself, the more neurotic and unhappy you get. You want to get real unhappy and depressed, just get into yourself for a little bit. That'll depress anybody. Uh, the truest way to find happiness is to forget yourself. Some Christians go overboard the other way. They don't practice self-love. They practice a kind of form of, of self-abuse, uh, where they kind of abuse themselves, run themselves down constantly. This is humility in their eyes. Uh, no, that's not. It's, it's a, a misguided concept of humility. Humility doesn't go around saying, I'm a worm, I'm worthless, I'm rotten, I'm this. Humility just basically says, I don't think about myself. I think about others. I'm not even thinking of myself. It's not, I don't love myself, I don't hate myself. I just forget about myself. And I go around loving others, serving others. The truest way to find happiness. Verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. And again, as his eyes glanced around the table, as he was talking to his true disciples again, he remembered Judas, the one who was not really his disciple. And he said, I don't speak concerning all of you, because there's one of you here, basically is what he's saying, that will never put himself last, that will never be a true servant to anyone else. He will always be the kind of person who will put himself above all others. I don't speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now Jesus wanted them to know this. He wanted to say this to his, uh, his apostles because he wanted them to know that when after Judas betrayed him, that they would not at all think that Judas' betrayal caught Jesus by surprise. Jesus wanted them to know he knew full well what Judas was going to do even before he chose him. In fact, it was prophesied a thousand years earlier in Psalm 41.9 when David wrote, My own friend who ate bread at my table, he has lifted up his heel against me. Of course, David was talking about his, his close friend and counselor, Ahithophel. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 15-17. through 17. Ahithophel turned against David. But David and Ahithophel become a type of Christ and Judas. Because Ahithophel wound up finally hanging himself, even as Judas finally wound up hanging 
himself, and it becomes a type, really, of Jesus and Judas. In fact, when David wrote that, Jesus quotes it a thousand years later and says, this was prophesied a thousand years ago. This was going to happen. I haven't been taken by surprise. I have chosen Judas knowing full well what he was going to do. And because of that, some people want to excuse Judas and say, well, if Jesus knew what he was going to do, wasn't Judas a helpless puppet of, of sovereignty and providence? No, absolutely not. He still had a free will. And just because Jesus knew what he would do and chose him on the basis of what he would do doesn't excuse Judas for what he did. He's still responsible. That's why Jesus said it would be better for that man if he had never been born. Verse 19, Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. The he is in italics and was added for clarity, but what he said in the Greek was, I'm telling you this before it happens, that when it comes to pass, you might know and believe that I am. Of course, that's the name of God. As Moses stood before the burning bush and God said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses says, yeah, I don't even know your name. God, how can I tell him who is sending me? And the Lord said to Moses, you tell him I am is sending you. And so Jesus said, look, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens, that you might know that I'm God. And that's exactly what God said to the prophet Isaiah. That's what God said throughout the Old Testament at different times. I'm going to tell you things before they happen, because only I know the end from the beginning. And I'm going to tell you What's going to happen before it comes to pass that you might know that I am the one and only God? God knew that there were going to be a lot of counterfeits, that Satan was going to push upon the human race a lot of false gods and a lot of false holy books. And the question is, well, how do we know who's the true God? How do we know what book is really God's word? God foresaw that and he supplied, provided for it in his word. One quarter of the Bible is prophecy. Things that God said were going to happen before they came to pass that we might know that this is the word of God and that he is God. And so Jesus said to them, look, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it comes to pass that you might know and believe that I am. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. And I kind of believe that Jesus added verse 20 to kind of comfort the hearts of everyone who had gotten saved through Judas's ministry. I mean, can you imagine if Judas had witnessed to you and you had gotten saved through his ministry and all of a sudden you find out he's a deceiver? He was never really genuine? He is the one who actually betrayed the Lord. You might be prone to say, what does that make me? I mean, I got saved through the guy's ministry. If he's a phony, what does that make me now? And Jesus says, wait a minute. Whoever, uh, he who receives whomever I send. Did Jesus send Judas? Yeah, he did with the other apostles. He who receives whom I send receives me. Hey, don't worry about it. It's not the messenger that's important. It's the message. You've received the message. You've received me doesn't matter who delivers it to you. could be an abject unbeliever. doesn't matter. As long as you believe in the true Son of God, you're going to be saved. Now, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, when Jesus said that, the other gospel writers tell us that, that, threw, that it threw that room into chaos, basically. I mean, they were all shocked and they all began to, uh, to ask him, Lord, it's not me, is it? It's not me, is it, Lord? You know, they all began to, to talk and to, to ask the Lord if it was them. And, and then it says here, verse 22, Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he had spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now who was that? It's John. Now here's the thing. We know that night Jesus was reclining in the middle of that group. They were around the table at a 45 degree angle in a U. He was in the middle couch and he was in the middle position on that couch. We know that there was somebody in front of him and we know from verse 23 it was that disciple whom he loved which was John. It's always John's way of referring to himself. So John was reclining just in front of Jesus which meant his head was very near Jesus' bosom or his chest. Now Peter was not reclining behind Jesus. We know that because it says here in verse 20, 
4, Simon Peter therefore motioned to him, to John, to ask who it was of whom he spoke. They were all saying, Lord, is it me? Is it me? Lord, it's not me, is it? You know, and, and as the room was just kind of up for grabs for a few minutes, Peter motions to John, which means that Peter wasn't right there, but he was far enough away where he had to kind of motion to John, and he said, ask the Lord who it is. Well, it says John then, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? So you get the picture. John leans back, and as he leans back, his head is on Jesus' chest, basically, and he looks up and says, Lord, who is it? Now, at this point, Jesus responds, but apparently he responds in a quiet enough voice where really the other disciples did not hear him. Now, verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. What you would not recognize readily from the text unless you studied it, the person in front of Jesus was John, we know that. The person directly behind Jesus had to be Judas Iscariot. Now, that's alarming for a couple of reasons. First of all, the place just behind the host of the dinner, where the host's head would be near his chest, that was considered to be the place of honor. It was a place reserved for a very intimate friend of the host. You say, well, how did Judas get there? Well, you just didn't take that place. It wasn't like we think, we just grab a seat. No. No, no, that place was a place of honor, and it was up to the host to direct to that place who he wanted to recline there, which says Jesus invited Judas to recline in back of him. He gave to him a place of honor at this feast, the Passover. Also, when he dipped the unleavened bread in the, the karish, the, the, the mixture of the nuts and the apples and the pomegranates and raisins and all, he dipped it and gave it to Judas. Remember, he says, it's the one to whom I give the bread for I've dipped it. He gives it to Judas at that point, and Matthew tells us that Judas, having received it, says to him, it's not me, is it, Lord? To which Jesus responds, you've said it. What you do, do quickly. Verse 27. After the piece of bread Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. The question comes up, why in the world if Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him, why did he treat him this way? Why did he give him the place of honor? Why did he dip the bread and give it to him? Because that was also an act of deep friendship. To take a piece of bread and dip it and give it to somebody was a comparable in our culture to toasting them. It was, a, it was an act of deep friendship. Why did Jesus treat Judas this way, gave him the place of honor, uh, honored him by giving him a piece of bread dipped in the, in, the, in the carish. He was treating him like a deep, close friend. Why? Because I believe even at this late hour, Jesus was trying to get Judas to repent. I really believe in my heart that even at this late hour, Jesus was giving Judas a chance to change his mind. He was saying to him, Judas, I love you. I've always loved you. There's still time to change. There's still time to let me be your savior, your master. I mean, this is your last chance, though. Take it. But even at this late date, Jesus was trying to, to show Judas how much he loved him, how much he wanted him to change. I mean, Jesus knew he wasn't going to repent, but he gave him every opportunity to repent. And just because Judas didn't repent didn't mean it was Jesus' fault. He gave him the opportunity. He demonstrated to him his love for him. He gave him the place of honor. He showed him uh, respect as a friend. And he was telling Judas through all these actions, Judas, I love you. It's not too late, but this is your last chance. I want to be your savior still. I want you to be with me forever. But Judas refused to repent. And the reason I say that this happened quietly Another reason why I firmly believe it was Judas behind Jesus because Judas would have had to have been close enough for him to hear Jesus. See, the only other person that heard what Jesus said when John said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, it's him to whom I give the bread when I have dipped it. 
Well, Jesus said that quietly enough where only John heard it, and the person behind him, which we know had to have been Judas, because when he gave the morsel to Judas, Judas said to him, Lord, it's not me, is it? And Jesus said, you said it. You know it's you. What you do, do quickly. And so, obviously, he must have said that quietly enough where the other disciples didn't hear it. Only Judas and John heard it because it says then, at that point, Satan entered into him. And then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. They all heard Jesus say, what you do, do quickly. But they thought... Verse 29, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. If those other disciples knew, if they had heard Jesus say, the guy who is going to betray me is the guy to whom I give the piece of bread when I dip it, I don't think Judas would have got out of there alive. There was no way he, they would let him leave that room. See, that's why we know this was a quiet thing that only the person in front of Jesus and behind him could have heard. We know John was in front of him. Judas must have been behind him. Now, verse 27 is very sad. Because even though Jesus gave Judas one last opportunity to repent, Judas did not take that opportunity. And after he received the piece of bread, it says, Satan entered into him. Which says, first of all, that... In Scripture, there's only two people that we know that Satan himself actually enters into and takes possession of. One is Judas Iscariot, and the other, of course, is the Antichrist. Two people that Satan felt their mission was important enough that he handled it personally. But once Satan entered into Judas, it also signified that Judas had passed really the point of no return, spiritually speaking. There was no longer any hope for him to be saved. His opportunity had gone. It was his last chance. He had blown it. Satan had entered into him. And it says that after Judas went out, and I love the little things the Holy Spirit adds because they're so rich in spiritual meaning, he went out immediately and it was night. And it was not just night physically speaking. It was night spiritually speaking in the heart of Judas, a night that would last forever and ever. Because the day of opportunity had come to an end. The day of God's grace to Judas was over. And now the night of judgment had begun and would last for all eternity. Later on, of course, as we're going to read, Judas, he thinks better of it. And he comes back and he tries to give the money back that he had taken from the chief priest to betray Christ. And says, I have betrayed innocent blood. And they said, hey, that's nothing. What, what is it to us? And he throws the money down and, goes out, uh, down and goes out and hangs himself. But unfortunately, before he did that, he did not repent. And so, again, uh, his eternity was sealed. And I wonder how Judas feels right now over the uh, decision that he made. So close, so close to eternal life, and yet misses it completely. Just close by taking you to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 contains one of the most controversial passages you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. I mean, this one has filled the shelves by various commentators of what they believe is actually being said here. But as we read this, I think you'll understand perfectly what the writer was talking about if you just think of Judas Iscariot when you read this passage, okay? Because if you don't think of Judas, you'll think, I'm going to, I can lose my salvation, and if I blow it and fall away, I can never be brought to repentance. And No, that's not what it's saying at all. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. And Christians for many, 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 many years, of course ever since this has been written probably, have read this and have become terrified thinking, if I fall away, if I backslide, Man, there's no hope to be saved again. I mean, that's it. I'm out. 
right? It's impossible to bring them to repentance again, right? Well, sometimes in figuring out what a difficult passage is saying, it's first helpful to determine what it's not saying. I mean, could this possibly be talking about a backslidden Christian? Once you backslide, there's no chance to ever come back again? Well, that's ridiculous. David backslid, Peter backslid, how many of us have backslidden and have come back again? It can't be talking about backslidden Christians. It says it's impossible to bring them to repentance. Well, that's not true. We've all backslidden and have been brought to repentance. I believe, and the writer could very well have been thinking about Judas when he wrote this. Think about it. Judas was enlightened to the fact that he knew what the Word of God was. God, Jesus Christ, taught him the Word of God. He enlightened him with regard to true spirituality and the, and the only way to be saved, right? He had tasted of the heavenly gift. He was a, was a part of the kingdom for a while in a sense that he was, uh, he was sent out by the Lord. He preached about the kingdom. People had gotten saved. He had become a partaker of the Holy Spirit in the sense that the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gave to the other apostles, he also gave to Judas for a time. Judas cast out demons, no doubt. He healed the sick, did miracles, just like the other ones had done. He had tasted of all these things, right? And yet... Verse 5, he tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And yet, if they fall away, and the Hebrew word is not just a, excuse me, the Greek word is not just a backsliding. It's a, where you come to a point where you stand up and totally renounce. You know, it's not just a backsliding. We all backslide. This is something different. This is a total renunciation of everything that you have claimed to believe. There are some people who follow Jesus, like Judas, but are not really born again. They're really not his disciples. And how do you know? Well, at one point, they just walk away once and for all. They just, they, they just renounce it all, you know? And after that, they have no desire to ever be involved in Christian things again. And a lot of times they get into, into, into Hinduism, then I've heard them get into the New Age movement or some other bizarre thing, and, and you try to witness to them, they have no desire to hear about Christ, the Bible, anymore. It's like a chapter that's completely over with, it's closed in their lives. They have no desire to return back to it. See, it's a militant, total renunciation. And John the Apostle said in his first epistle, he says, many have gone out from us. But they were never really one of us. For if they had been one of us, if they had been truly disciples of Christ, they would have remained with us. But because they have left the faith, it signifies they were never really genuine. And so Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, he said. That's how you know if you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ. You continue. Not that you don't backslide once in a while, but overall, eventually you pick yourself up again, repent, Get back in the race. Overall, your life is marked by commitment to Him. You don't renounce your faith. You may find it hard to walk in the faith at times, but you don't renounce. It's like Peter. You say, well, Lord, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. It's hard and it's not easy, but I have nowhere else to go. I can't go. I'm not going back to the world. I'm not going anywhere else. You've only got the words of eternal life. It's hard. But man, I have no desire to go back to the world, so I'm going to stick it out. That's the heart of a true disciple. A Judas follows the Lord for a time, but in the end betrays him, walks away, renounces everything. That's how you know he was never genuine. And so, just turning back to Mark again real quick. In verse 21, Jesus said, Woe unto that man who betrays him. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And then, at this point, Peter apparently says to John, ask him who it is. John leans back and says, Lord, who is it? Jesus said, it's the one I give the bread to after I've dipped it in the, in the sop. And he gives it to Judas, and Judas says, it's not me, is it, Lord? But all quietly, and Jesus says, yes, it is. What you do, do quickly. And Judas gets up and he leaves. And then, apparently, after Judas goes... Although it's not stated directly, I believe this is the case. Then Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. But Judas has already gone. And I think that's kind of significant. I don't think the Lord would have really celebrated a sacrament that signifies the true believer's relationship with God with Judas there. 
So apparently Judas has gotten up now. He's gone out. The disciples don't know why he's gone out. They think maybe he's going to buy something further for the feast or give some money to the poor. And then Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, which really replaces the Passover as the new memorial for the people of God under the new covenant of what God has done for us. We'll talk about that in detail next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is a light unto our, uh, unto our feet, uh, a guiding light, Lord, to guide us through the spiritual darkness of this world. But Lord, we ask you to help us to learn from the mistakes that the disciples made, Lord, in their constant desire for greatness in the eyes of men, that we instead, Lord, would follow your example and desire greatness in the eyes of God, which takes the form of being a servant to all. The unbelievers, Lord, they think greatness is measured in terms of how much authority they have over how many people. But greatness in your eyes, Lord, is measured by how willing we are to put ourselves under the authority of others, to give and to give and to give for love's sake, following the same example that you showed us and that you laid down your life for us. Help us to lay down our lives for each other, for in so doing, our joy will be full. And I just pray, Lord, that if there are any, well, Judas types in our fellowship, those who come and hear the word of God, but have never really made a commitment to you, Lord, that, Lord, you would really touch their hearts and show them they're playing games with their eternity. And you would help them to get honest about themselves and to honestly evaluate their own hearts as to whether or not they really are genuine believers and disciples of yours or just Judases who are following you and calling you Lord but really don't know you. For the rest of us, Lord, we pray you would strengthen us in our walk, that we would be true disciples, that we would echo the words of Peter, especially when the going gets tough. Lord, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. I'm in it for the long haul, Lord. I'm in it till the end. I'm yours. That'll never change. Strengthen us, Lord, as true disciples. We love you and we praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.